It's really a treat to be with you, however odd it is to be sitting in our living rooms instead of in the little place where you meet normally. Although I was glad to be in that little place when Katie was ordained. It was really, I was one of the lucky ones who got to be there in person. Liz has been a good friend and colleague of mine for a long time. So I've followed your life uh, as a congregation with joy and interest. So uh, a treat, as I said, to be here this morning. And um, you can see, um, you can see, or you could a minute ago, a second ago, the title of the sermon, Unity! Ah! That's what that question mark, exclamation point, repeated is, I think. Ah! Isn't that a word we've heard a lot this week? And I wonder, as you've heard that word, uh, what feelings, thoughts, or other words come to your mind. Um, longing, longing for unity, uh, maybe suspicion. You know, you hear the word and you, sometimes you hear that word unity and it's code word for getting my way. Uh, futility or pessimism, like we've heard that word before. It's a word, but we want the real thing. Uh, or maybe just fatigue. Again, can't we just get on with it? I was thinking um, this week of another time of racial unrest in our country uh, 30 years ago. So I realized most of you were too little to probably remember it, but an African man was beaten and riots in LA as a result. And the man who was beaten said, why can't we all just get along? And the response to that was this mixture of emotion, right? So ridiculous. Well, those are real reasons why we can't get along. And, but on the other hand, this longing, this wishing that why can't we? Why can't we? It's certainly true in the political sphere, right? In our country. But what's even more disheartening, I think, in this season is it's just as true in our church. Um, unity seems increasingly elusive. All the clergy in my universe, and there are quite a number of them, including some bishops are struggling. Every conversation I've had over the last few weeks has been about how do I do this? How do I lead my people who are so divided? <clears throat> how do I call them to peace and unity, which I know is meant to be a mark of us? How do I remind all of us that we are called by the Prince of Peace to demonstrate, to manifest to the world this unity and peace? And every statement that these clergy, including bishops, make seem to be seem to produce angry replies, assumptions made about their meaning. Um, even if the comments are benign, the response is full of rancor and, as I said, assumptions. So how interesting then, in the face of all that, that you, O oh Incarnation, had planned long ago to have a sermon series on 1 Corinthians uh, about a, a letter Paul wrote to a church in conflict, and how interesting on this particular week, a week in which we've heard a lot about unity with suspicion, fatigue, longing, <laughs> and futility, um, a, a chapter that talks about unity. 
certainly Paul was no stranger to conflict. Everywhere he went, he produced it. The Jews and the Gentiles, the ins and the outs, um, everywhere he seemed to find it. And I wonder if he too, like us, felt those same words, those same that same longing, that same suspicion, futility, or fatigue whenever he talked about unity to his leaders and congregations. He certainly was obsessed with the topic of unity. Pretty much all of his letters are written in the face of conflict. And his desire was to help them wake up and figure out how to be one, even if they had disagreement. And most of what he wrote to the churches addressed the lack of unity. And he knew the power of the gospel, right? He knew uh, that Jesus Christ at work in our lives was meant to dissolve the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, a division that we have to struggle to grasp that was so full of enmity uh, between slave and free, between male and female, like in Christ, those huge walls of division were meant to be broken down. And he knew um, that Jesus, even in the calling of his disciples, we heard the first part of Jesus' call of his first disciples. But if you remember, his disciples included two bands of brothers, probably a setup for some conflict if those families were anything like ours. But also they included a, collab a collaborator and an agitator, right? That kind of sounds eerily familiar. And here these were in the band of disciples he chose through whom to make the gospel evident to all of us. And of course, if you follow the gospels, you know there was plenty of conflict. But then at the end, in Jesus, they found a kind of unity that changed the world. So um, Paul knew that a key aspect of our reconciliation with God had to do with our reconciliation with one another breaking down those walls of hostility. And so he speaks to the Corinthians who were not experiencing much of that unity. We're in the midst of conflict. The Corinthians, as you know, were a gifted, sophisticated, experienced congregation, full of the power of God. If anyone experienced the power of God and knew the ways of God, they were it in demonstrable ways. And they were beloved. I mean, Paul spent more time with Corinthians than his other church plants. Maybe that was part of the problem. No. Uh, uh, he, he loved them. And it was agonizing to him to see this church that he had established uh, become racked by conflict, even as our hearts are broken, as we look at our congregations or our church or our country. Uh, the power of God was evaporating in the midst of this conflict, almost as if somebody had poked a pin into a balloon, the power just fizzling out. And so it meant a lot to Paul. Now, you already know if you followed this series that the conflict was focused on these factions, right? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Christ. Um, and Paul said, though, that these um, followers who claim to have the best leader, therefore the best knowledge or the best sense of discipleship, really 
these leaders were full of jealousy, strife, and arrogance. He calls the issue in the Corinthians for what it is. Jealousy, strife, and arrogance. It's not, you're not making a statement about how great your leader is when you say you're of their party, but you're actually reflecting your own power-hungry needs, your power-hungry hearts, and your spiritual immaturity. Now, calling them spiritually immature, you you remember the opening of the chapter, I gave you milk, not solid food. You're not just saying you're immature, you're babies. You're not even, you're not even to a few months old when you can be to have applesauce, right? You're still nursing, he's saying. And they're like, us? Are you friggin' kidding me? We have spiritual gifts, we have these experiences, we know things, we're smart, we're from, we're from. Corinth. I'm from New York. So I would say I'm from New York, you know, like you're, you're from Arlington, you know, immature us. Are you, are you kidding? Uh, I'm sure they were brought to attention by those words. How could you say that? I mean, we've had Paul, Apollos, and even Jesus teaching us and they're spluttering in their irritation with Paul's word. But Paul goes on to give the solution to this conflict, which he says is based on their arrogance, strife, and jealousy. And he gives a couple of parables following the example of Jesus, a couple of homely parables that sound simple, but really are saying some things pretty nuanced and sophisticated. You're a field, Paul says, you're a field. You're planted by me, watered by Apollos, but we don't own it. We're just taking our part. The field is owned and grown by God, not by us, not by me, not by Apollos. It's owned by God, and we're just doing our assignment. And they're important assignments, yes, but they fit with other assignments. You're a field. So take your part and see that it's all of a piece instead of uh, breaking down, not becoming fruitful, God is the land owner. You're called to grow in it. You're the recipients of God's grace. And even if you follow Paul or me or Apollos, the point of following us is to receive God's grace, not to show off your wonderful knowledge and experience. The field is a ter- is a is an image often used for God and Israel. So again, there is this multiple nuanced meaning to the to the image. He's saying, "Now you're the new Israel, planted by God. This is a wonderful thing. So don't get distracted by who your leader is, rather than receiving this leadership as a gift from God, uh, meant to nourish you and grow you into a fruitful field." And then he goes on, you're a temple, plural you here again, you're, you together are a temple with a foundation already built and the walls are being built with wood, hay, or uh, metal or precious jewels. Uh, Build it with good building materials in order to withstand fire. And he talks about fire that will bring to bring clarity to how substantial the building materials are. Uh, Corinth 
had experienced a fire that decimated it 200 years earlier, but Corinth lay fallow for 100 years before it was rebuilt, about uh, 40 BC. And uh, so Paul knew that that was in the memory, that, you know, the, the DNA, the self-image of Corinth. It was a city that had been burnt. So this image of the temple being burnt, it was uh, clear, you know, intense for them. Uh, they had that cultural memory. It would, and, and also the temple, remember, in Jerusalem was still in existence, right? It was a, the center of God's presence. Sacrifices were still being offered there. And some of the gates were made with Corinthian brass, which was said to be more beautiful than gold or silver. So when Paul talks about you being the temple and he talks about building materials, they're thinking about the shining visibility of the temple in Jerusalem. And now he's saying it's not quite built. Don't build, build with hay or stubble. This image is a vibrant one for them. It's a radical picture. You Corinthians are God's temple, not the temple in Jerusalem. You are, even though it isn't fully built, God already is in your midst as he is in the temple, in fact, more substantially than he is in the temple in Jerusalem. So don't mess it up, he's saying. Don't mess it up by this argumentative jealousy, strife, and arrogance that is actually building on the solid foundation of Jesus with hay or stubble or wood that's going to be burnt. Uh, you'll be saved, but barely, he says. Again, this kind of very harsh, strong language to the Corinthians who think they're so great, so spiritually mature. <laughs> unless you get this straight, unless you deal with your jealousy, strife, and arrogance, oh Corinthians, you'll, you'll survive all right. You know, God isn't going to totally reject you, but you could be a temple shining with Corinthian brass and precious jewels Re revealing the glory of God to the world. That's what you're meant for. That's what you think you already are, but you're not. So get control of this conflict. Uh, deal with the sin in your lives, corporate sin in your lives, so that God's power and love can be demonstrated. So the walls of hostility can be broken down, not just in you, you plural, but across the world. You're not wise when you act this way. There's no reason for jealousy, Paul goes on. All things are yours. You've been given everything. You don't need to be jealous. You've been given everything you need. So this vying for who's first uh, is inappropriate in the, among the people of God. You're about to miss its riches by this argumentativeness that the strife, jealousy, and arrogance. And I think Paul's words are sharp and focused and timely for us as well, who are living in a time marked by conflict, who are longing for unity and are longing for the unity that comes from Christ to be in our midst and to be reflective of the love and power that comes in Jesus, right? So, so what do we do? How do we take these words to heart? I think for me, as I've thought about this all week long, um, I think Psalm 130 
that we heard responsibly read so wonderfully is a great place to start to recalibrate, reflect, and adjust our hearts. Notice that it's something we do individually, but also something we do all together. Uh, Out of the depths I have called, Psalm 130 says, and I wait for the Lord. I wait for the Lord. My trust is in him. I wait for him more than watchmen for the morning. Uh, There is mercy, forgiveness, redemption in you, O Lord. In other words, my identity comes from you, God, not from Paul or Apollos, not that I'm a member of incarnation, a plant of restoration, or I'm a member of this party or that, that I have this spiritual knowledge or that. I belong to you, Jesus, and I'll take any role you call me to as I seek to allow myself to be built into the field, built into the temple where your power and love can be demonstrated and light can be demonstrated. My identity and peace comes from God, who is utterly dependable, full of mercy and steadfast love. I think Psalm 130 and Paul call us to slow down, to listen, to wait, to remember who we are, to remember whose we are, really. Uh, of course, that's easy to say. Uh, But have you noticed that in conflicted situations, we get going faster and faster instead of slowing down and remembering who we are in Jesus? So secondly, I, I would say, let's take stock specifically around these areas that Paul talks about, jealousy, strife, and arrogance, instead of gratitude for the gifts of others, generosity, and humility. I was thinking this week, uh, I had a conversation with a leader in the church who's going to be working in our diocese. And he knows he needs all the, he knows all the big, uh, well, some big names in the wider church, you know, the names you wish you knew them, famous people. And he was, you know, sort of dropping them into conversation, not arrogantly at all. But I found myself name dropping back, right? Well, this, that, and the other thing is I was trying to help them understand how Anglicanism works and where I was. And I'm like, afterwards, I just, uh, especially in light of this passage, I was, oh my gosh, I was overwhelmed. Lord, I am sorry. Now, I mean, some of that is connection, right? So I'm not going to overbeat myself, but some of it is, do I have to show off who I am? Do I have to name drop or connect myself to the greats in order, just like the Corinthians, rather than listen, ask questions, be thoughtful, and be delighted at the gifts and experiences this leader has. Um, I'm quick with my negative judgments, and I can say, well, I'm just discerning. But is it discernment or is it judgment? Is it a quick judgment uh, put down in my heart? Can I allow God to clean that part out of me so that discernment comes from God and comes from compassion and um, generosity towards others rather than, again, uh, strife or longing to put myself forward? And then humility um, instead of my own wisdom, thinking I'm so smart 
can I listen? Can I ask? Can I be uh, honoring of others, even those who, in my humble opinion, don't deserve it? Uh, can I have the attitude that Jesus did, who was equal to God, but as we read in Peter to the Philippians, didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself? Can I recalibrate my heart once again to be in step down mode and step up others, step down myself so others can be stepped out? That's what Paul is calling the Corinthians to, a different kind of life that they know that they know they should have and uh but regularly need recalibration and i think that's what paul would call us to this week next week and in the weeks and months ahead we're in a time of fear and anxiety that often produce produces conflict but we as a church of god could recalibrate could stop, listen, remember who we are, and replace our jealousy, strife, and arrogance with gratitude, generosity, and humility. And we could do that with one another, right? We can encourage one another. We could notice it, we see it in one another, just as Paul noticed when he wasn't seeing it in the Corinthians. What if we started noticing when we do see it in one another? So incarnation could be a people that resembles a temple shining with God's light and vibrant with God's presence. I was so struck by the welcoming heart of incarnation at the beginning of service, by the delight that you all have being with one another. May you more and more fully come into your true identity as God's field as God's temple. And may we all with his help, with Jesus' help, lay aside our jealousy, strife, and arrogance, becoming a people of generosity, gratitude, and humility. Will you pray with me? Shining God, full of light, full of grace and mercy, full of redemption, Shine on us. Shine on our hearts that are broken and fearful. And remind us once again of your sufficiency, your love, your graciousness. That we might show it to one another and to those in the world around us. In Christ's name, amen.